Hi, Ali. Hi, Tim. How's it going? Yeah, very good, thanks. Yeah, very good. How's it going for you? Yeah, it's going all right. It's just been a bit of a crappy year there, hasn't it? Yes, it has. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> and I assume that's where you are going to say something else. Yeah, I mean, because it's been such a write-off, I think one of the things we can do to get through is just to cast our minds onto something that is more enjoyable, such as music. Very good idea. What did you have in mind? Why don't we talk about music that we both love and, and I guess what we like about it, how it's shaped our lives and perhaps what factors influence the music itself. I see, so sort of diving a bit deeper into the music and understanding why we feel the way we do about it. Yeah, exactly. And, and perhaps challenging some of the established narratives that history has created for some of the music. Sounds like a great idea. How about we call it life's music? Yeah, why not? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm here, so it's okay. It must have been a combination of the caffeine and the excitement for this episode. Yeah, no, I had, uh, I had a lot of fun researching this episode, actually, because over the years I tend to buy like this alternate music guide to like an artist or like a genre, and it would be done in collaboration between Uncut and Enemy. So they would stitch all these retrospective reviews together as well as like interviews of the time and also just various bits of analysis yeah and it'd be a good read you know it's a good chunky magazine like a yeah, yeah, yeah and i had one on paul weller so it covered nice. all of his yeah. jam I I, style council. i think i might have the exact same one actually you know yeah yeah it's funny there's, there's like a there's like a tagline on it where it says weller says like i don't mind looking back now <laughs> yeah, yeah just yeah. that kind of thing um but also i had i, I dug out my um one of my equivalents on Britpop as well. And I wanted to have a look at it because there was a section on it which talks about the roots of Britpop and it mentions all mod cons and the jam yeah. specifically as a key influence. And I thought, yeah, I yeah. need to I need to make use of that. So, and also thirdly, when I, when I was doing like online research, there was actually a, a kind of a making of documentary on YouTube as well, which was part of the, I think it's a 2006 reissue or something special edition of the the album really? um yeah so it's like a, all mod cons yeah the, where do they get the footage from for that but I well think get it from archive yeah stuff from over the years i know i know there's um i think i've got a i can't remember what it's called that's pretty called start or something generic yeah. um yeah some documentary we're going carrying yeah it's a 30 minute documentary and it's on it's on youtube i mean it's albeit the the audio and the video is a bit out of sync slightly, but uh, but yeah, it's a mixture of archive footage as well as actual interviews with Foxton, Buckler, Weller, all you know in two thousand six. So they all look you know a bit more aged and. Uh, yeah. they, you know, one of my um, one of my favourite things about this is that they always almost always have more footage of Rick Buckler and Bruce Fox than they do of Paul Weller. Yeah, yeah. It's like they're just they're just like they're not doing anything. They're free. <laughs> that sounds really harsh. Whereas Weller's obviously actually doing stuff yeah and that, perhaps less inclined to talk about it as well yeah, exactly yeah yeah yeah, yeah 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 but that's always been his attitude isn't it it's always basically like you know even from the star council onwards it's like don't dig up the past essentially yeah i mean he's i think he's always been quite a forward-looking guy isn't he like yeah he's always been one to just keep moving on to the next thing he's not he's never been one for 
nostalgia really yeah um, i mean that's it, what it, keeps it, them it, creative i guess isn't it exactly yeah i think also it's it's sort of also as a part of that thing because I, I re-listened to one of our episodes the other day the, the Noel gallagher news that oasis might be getting back together episode <laughs> um <laughs> and yeah no, it's hilarious uh what we said about when you've got that purpose you don't sort of rest on your laurels you just keep going which yeah. is presumably what, what well is doing so mm-hmm. it's fine yeah that's, that's interesting did you want to officially open the episode or have yeah. we already started i think i think i think too, we can say we've already started yeah. really and i think for the benefit of our listeners i think what we can kind of outline is the, the agenda of uh, of this episode because i think like with before before we started recording this we'd already discussed like, the kind of things we want to talk about because this is yeah. quite a special episode for us it's, you know so it's a band we both really like and yeah. And I think there's some key themes that we wanted to touch upon. So I think we'll, we'll start off, I think for the benefit of the listeners, we'll just have a little brief backstory to, to who the jam are, as kind, yeah. of the, the kind of history all the way up to that album. And then yeah. we'll talk about the album itself, how it performs. Because, and, and yeah, because this is sort of yeah. like the Modfather's breaking out moment, isn't it? Really? It, yeah. it is. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is an album after which the Jam's career really yeah. gets better and better and better. And yes, it does kind of cement his reputation as a great songwriter, really. And yeah, and, we'll, and there's obviously some lyrical themes that I think we've both touched upon and, and we can we can cross-reference that. And then finally, I think we want to talk about the legacy of this album, um, you know, the influence it's had over the years and touched yeah. upon that rock lineage you mentioned last time, Tim. So I think yeah. those, those five things we can talk about as a structure for this episode was there anything else you wanted to mention anything you think i've missed out there no i think that i think that's that's uh yeah i will let it flow and see what random stuff comes out of my mouth as usual yeah <laughs> all right let's do it um <laughs> so let's begin with the story of the band and we'll keep this brief but you and i know the story of this band pretty well we're both big fans but i think for anyone who's new to the jam essentially they formed way back in 1972. They are a yeah. band from Woking, a little town. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I, I, I was yeah. just—I was just sorry. I know this is really annoying to interrupt you again. It's just basically my role on this podcast. But um, <laughs> I got my, my boss sent me a text this morning about I don't know some bullshit about um, the healthiest place to live, and it turns out. It, oh yeah, sorry. Okay, yeah. So the healthiest place to live is actually Wokingham. Sorry, not Woking. Yeah, I was going to say <laughs> that seems a bit. But anyway, go on. Well, right. you know what? Fair enough. <laughs> I've actually been to Wokingham before. Yeah, yeah, I, I camped there with a mate of mine going to Reading Festival uh, back yeah. in 2011. Like, we didn't want to camp in Reading Festival itself. We wanted a place with actual facilities. Yeah, um, so away we, from the yobs. Yeah, we camped um, at this this campsite in uh, in Wokingham, and yeah, we'd get a train all the way to Reading from the station, yeah. and then we'd wow. get a bus in. So yeah, that was. Uh, yeah. I've been close to Woking, but not actually. In Woking. Yeah. <laughs> not not woke. Yeah, not woking, basically. Yeah. 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 Woking is where they're from. Yeah. And uh, I think they were, they were originally called the Shearwater Jam, if I remember like just yes. really back in the day. Yeah, yeah, that, that's I think that's right, because they Weller attended Shearwater Secondary School and he, he basically formed the band with with his mates at the time. And you know, he was initially like the bass player in a band, but he was still doing the vocals and they were just doing like local gigs at a club called Michael's really. And they would they'd start off doing, you know, American rock covers, you know, people like Chuck Berry and Little Richards. But it was when Weather came across uh, the My Generation album by The Who that basically got him converted into modern music and culture. And so like they deliberately start diverting their 
attention yeah. to covers of like Motown, Stax and Atlantic uh, songs, really. And basically, by the mid-70s, the lineup basically solidifies around Weller as the front man, but also as the guitarist, because they get Bruce Foxton, who's the bass player, uh, yeah. to take up bass duties, because up until that point, he'd been the band's second guitarist. And they kind of decided, right, we're just going to be a three-piece, because that seems to work best for them. Yeah. And finally, yeah, on drums is Rick Buckler. So that is the consistent lineup all the way through yeah. to, to the end of the of the band's career steve brooks the early band member was completely ripped by this point yeah yeah he was kind of the oh, what's the name that drummer from the beatles who, who was before ringo what was, what was his name? <laughs> I don't is, know. He, is, he, is he the equivalent of that guy you know like he was like the he was on the first in the band but he didn't make it all the way through to the end kind of yeah yeah is it also andy was oh, it pete best is it pete best that's that's who that's who it was uh, Pete it Best was the original drummer of the beatles before ringo so it's like is, is okay. steve brooks the pete best of the chant yeah 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 <laughs> but yeah um, plus also um andy nicholson from the arctic monkeys who uh Oh yeah, of course, yeah. Actually <laughs> bailed after the first album, so yeah. 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 But but yeah, this, this, it's it's interesting, isn't it? The, the ones who who got off the bus before it actually reached its. Yeah, it's it's, it's interesting. I'll, yeah, you see that story a few times across a, a lot of different. Yeah, bands. maybe we should do an episode on them. No. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> the the unsung heroes. Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, there's quite a, yeah, there's quite a few. I mean, we could do a big because obviously you got like the Diana Ross. Yeah, we got the sort of like Motown people as well. Not a lot. Wouldn't yeah. do an entire episode on all the Motown people, but like I'm just saying, you know, for example, I mean, there's actually a film made about the Diana Ross and the um, you know, the Supremes. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, yeah. One of, one, of, one of the Supremes passed away very recently, didn't she? Um, um, yeah, I, I'm not sure. I can't really remember. It must be the I don't know what the other one's name. Is. Yeah, like you remember Diana Ross, but you don't remember the other two. That sounds yeah. Bad, well, well, yeah. I remember. Yeah, Diana Ross. I assume I think she's still alive. Yeah, she? she is. Yeah, yeah. And then Flo Ballard was the one who unfortunately died quite young. And then yeah. there's like the third one, which I don't remember. But yeah, yeah, yeah. She she passed away like a few weeks ago. I remember seeing it on the news. Um, she was like going to do like a like this whole tour and everything. Um, so, uh, but yeah. um. So in terms of who manages the band, it's none other than Weller's dad, John, who basically manages Weller right up until he passes away in 2009. So he's a really constant presence in Paul's career for, for most Actually of his... mega, isn't it? I never yeah. thought, I never realised that. I didn't realise he was managing right up until 2009. Yeah, yeah. So all the way through Style Cancel and Acela years, yeah. It's, um... it's a good way of doing it because it means at least, you know, you're not going to get ripped off like some bands do by their manager. But yeah. at least if you, if you do get ripped off, then... It's yeah. like a family, <laughs> family thing. Yeah, it's interesting because, like, I think typically you you would trust a, a family member, but even if you look at, say, like, I don't know if like the Jackson family are an example of this. Like, you know, I think the, apparently Michael Jackson's dad was quite a piece of work. You know, really like, oh, really? you know, yeah. cutthroat businessman. <laughs> you know, like you can have these yeah. little really Sangali kind of characters and. You know, even yeah. within families, like even you know, so even if it's someone you know, you can still feel betrayed. Yeah, you know, sometimes uh, I think I think it just depends on the on the relationship, doesn't it? And sometimes the, the, it's it's yeah. strong enough to stand the test of commercial pressures, and sometimes it isn't. But you know, yeah, uh, <coughs> Gallagher brothers. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see how long we can last without mentioning them again in this episode. That's, <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. okay. I'll, I'll, yeah, sorry, so but, let's, yeah, okay. let's let's time it. Yeah. Um, so over the next couple of years after 1975, so the band basically they get a small following. They play a lot of small gigs in London. So, and, that, and this is where the punk scene, the nascent punk scene is growing. Uh, and they really ride the wave of that. And it's interesting because 
Sonically, they share some elements of punk. You know, they're angry young men. They play fast and they play loud. But equally, they stand apart because they're wearing these tailored suits. They're aping these 1960s influences, which were deemed uncool by the rest of the punk crowd. And they got labelled by the critics as revivalists. Um, I think they clash actually reference them in uh, one of their songs, like just taking the mick out of them, yeah. Yeah. But but it's interesting because if you compare the jam to the rest of the punk bands of the time, I think you could easily argue that they were arguably the most professional and talented bunch. (laughs) They really are. I would say so, yeah. Because the thing about punk, if you recall, is like, is this notion of, oh, you know, I just need to now play three chords and, you know, I can play. You know, if if anything, like there was a snobbery about being too competent at your position (laughs) ship. It's like it was looked down upon. So that's why, that's part of the reason why the jam got a bit stick because they were actually seen as really good players. And they were like, you know, you're almost too good really to be part of this. So, so that's, that's something that set them apart. But um, all this hard work, that they do, you know, doing all this gigging, it pays off for them. They get signed to Polydor Records uh, in 1977, and their first single, In the City, gets released in April of that year, and it charts into the top 40. And the following month, their debut album of the same name is released. Uh, that reaches 20 in the album chart, and it receives a lot of critical acclaim. And, it, you know, it, it combines various 60s influences, such as Motown, The Who, and The Beatles, it, it has a couple of covers on there, like Slow Down by Larry Williams and, and also the Batman theme. Yeah, exactly. Um, I thought it was just bizarre. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a bit funny when you when you look at it. And uh, like ly- lyrically, you know, and you see this all the way through the jam's career, there's a lot of politically charged lyrics, you know, yeah. so well as taking aim at things like police brutality. I, I think <laughs> I think, also, I think it, it's not quite, do you know what I mean? It's quite clumsy. It's not yeah. quite there yet in terms of his... his yeah, his sort of stinging, realistic, kind of gritty vibe. It's like you kind of got, for example, in um, Bricks and Mortar and mm. um, Time for Truth. <laughs> it's just a bit like, okay, On yeah, the nose, I, get what, yeah. I get what you're saying. It's like, like yeah. this kind of like brute force political song. Yeah, it's it's very, it's just lashing out, basically. That's what the songs are doing. They're lashing out at basically anything and everything, you know, whether it's police brutality, yeah. the, the decline of the empire, or even Jimmy Callahan himself, the Prime Minister yeah, yeah. of the time. So it's, yeah, it's it's very outwardly angry. And again, that anger is always a constant thread throughout the Jam's career, albeit I think it gets tamed, you know, towards the end. It becomes a bit more yeah. well-channeled, so to speak. Well, I, th- I think Weller masters this sort of art of putting the anger into a vehicle of a pop song. Yeah. Whereas these songs are sort of like unrefined, just r- rants almost. Yeah. And, you know, again, it's following that typical template of, you know, first album's just raw rock and roll. It's just very untamed, very, like, you know, sonically, the production yeah, on it yeah. is very basic as well. There's no overdubs or anything. Yeah. It's just what There's you some hit. Really, some really, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's so fine. Yeah, go, go ahead. There's some really strong tracks on it, like um, I've Taken My Love, I Changed My Address. Oh yes, they, they just have some really, really nice bassy guitar sounds to them. Yeah, I, I quite liked "Away from the Numbers." Yeah, non-stop dancing. I oh, yeah, yeah, non-stop yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Arts, art school as well. No, it's just yeah, very, oh, yeah, yeah, classic. Yeah, yeah. yeah, one, two, three, four count. You know, it's very much like the Ramones or like the Beatles yeah. in the first album. You know, just like very. Yeah. Classic rock and roll thing to do is like one, two, three, four, and bang, off you go. Yeah. So, and then uh, loads of feedback at the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So much feedback <laughs> from that Rick and Backer guitar. So yeah, so you know, off the back of this album, it obviously gets them some tension, and they have this uh, non-album top ten hit called All Around the World, and that's 
gets released and it uh, obviously it performs well as a hit and that reflects the band's growing popularity and what it, one of the unfortunate effects of this is to put a lot more pressure on them to kind of capitalise on that popularity and, and basically produce material for a follow-up album and what you get only a few months later that year in November is the second album which is This Is The Modern World and it reaches a similar level in the album chart number 22 and it actually shifts over 60,000 copies so it achieves like a silver certification and its lead single, The Modern World, reaches number 36 in the singles chart. So, yeah. it, you know, commercially speaking, you know, it does all right. But I think critically, it dents their credibility because uh, a lot of the critics thought that the, the songwriting was just weaker and it felt rushed, essentially. And I guess that's essentially true. Like, it was a rushed album. Apparently, Weller's dad felt in particular that there was a need to try and capitalise on the the increasing popularity of the bands as a, uh, and to kind of make good with Polydor, you know, the record company. So I just get something out there. Yeah, you? yeah, exactly. Um, I can't, I can't remember what's on the out. Al- I mean, I'm just looking at the album track list here. To be honest, quite a lot of these are quite, quite forgettable. Yeah, yeah. yeah I quite uh, like In the Midnight Hour and obviously The Modern World is decent. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, Tonight at Noon, I think, was a good one as well. But yeah, I think that those three are the only kind of memorable tracks from it. I mean, it's, it's interesting because sonically, you know, it continues that energy and pace of the first album. But interesting that the lyrics of it seem to reflect Weller's increasing disillusionment with like the punk scene in London and London itself, really. I think he moved to London during the second album. But I think he also, like, when he's going to, like, punk gigs and stuff, you know, he's just kind of looking at what's going on. He's just being like, like, he gets, he, like, he's he's drawn to the energy of it, but, like, I think he's put off by the violence of it and, like, the snobbery of it and everything. Like, he doesn't really feel, if he doesn't feel a part of the scene, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so like, I he's think, an outsider. But, yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, so I think there's... It's kind of, it, yeah. it's almost like, you know, the, the whole point of the scene was to do one thing and now he thinks it's, it's sort of doing something else. Yeah, I think he I think he basically clocked that early before anyone else did, really. I think a lot of people, like nowadays, you know, when you when we reflect on the music history, so you get this notion of this, like, oh, you know, punk basically died by the late 70s and had to be reborn as, like, uh, something else, essentially. Yeah. Uh, like post-punk or whatever. But, I mean, as early as, you know, 1937, Well is already realizing where it's going and he's like you know that this isn't really something i want to be part of you know i want to do my own thing so that, that's that's i think that's reflected in the the lyrics of the of the songs it's interesting because another kind of crucial moment in jam's career here is that when they promote the album they go on this tour in the u.s a couple of times in 1978 and, and very oddly they get coupled on a supporting bill with the rock band Blue Oyster Cult. And honestly, you could not think of a more <laughs> different band to, to, to support. Yeah, and as, as you can imagine, yeah, they're playing these massive stadiums and like all these all these Yanks are like, what, who the hell are these guys? Like they're just, there's booing off stage, chucking beer bottles at them and everything. They just say, so you know, the jam are not well received in the US. And partly, I think you can understand why, because, and we'll touch on this later, but like the jam are very like, English band like the sensibilities and the lyrics and the themes yeah. it's all very English and deliberately so and that thing just doesn't really translate well across the pond does it unless like yeah. you're like I think, I think also kind of fan I guess but yeah I think I think also I don't know if you mentioned this but like in terms of like what they look like as well like the mod yeah. thing wasn't really there's yeah. never really been a thing in America no so. not at all no like I, I think it was just completely alien to them you know if you think about 
the way the American rock scene was and by this point, you know, it was all very much like stadium rock, soft rock, you know, big acts. It was all long hair, you know, hippies and stuff. You know, it's just completely different yeah. audience. And it, it does it does surprise me that Polydor would even think to try and promote a band like The Jam in a completely different territory like that, where... It's really wild. Yeah. So unsurprisingly, yeah, their, their second album fell to even break into the Billboard 200. So it's not considered a, a success in that territory. And inevitably off the back of this, that you know, record label starts to put more pressure on the band to deliver a hit record, essentially. Like, you know, give us this great record that's going to yeah, perform well. Yeah, exactly. And unfortunately, Weller starts suffering from writer's block, you know, so he comes back from the States and essentially he becomes a bit disinterested in the whole recording and lighting process. I think he's just, he's just kind of hit a bit of a wall in terms of inspiration. So in between that and actually creating what would become all mod cons, to buy some time, Bruce Fox and Penn's News of the World, which um, uh, reaches number 27 in the singles chart. So Foxen sings the vocals on this. It's a non-album single. It gets released in uh, March of 1978, and it becomes, up to that point, the band's second biggest hit. And as I said, it basically buys some time for them to basically for Weller to find some inspiration because like they obviously want to let the public know that the jam is still going, you know, chuck a little meat to the wolves, so to speak. But uh, yeah. Yeah. It's actually, but yeah, it's actually quite a decent song. Like it's not too bad. But yeah. Yeah, and you know, as we both know, it's like the theme to uh, you know, the TV show, isn't it? The uh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, for for a for a Foxton song, it is a decent tune. And um <laughs> <laughs> for a Foxton. Yeah, for I mean, Foxton, yeah. yeah. Considering considering obviously uh, what he came out with on the previous album was London Traffic, and um, yeah, it's just awful. But well, um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I mean, whilst we're on that topic, then I mean, so basically, so when it comes to starting off with the writing on all mod cons, basically the the initial attempt is mainly Foxton Penn's songs, and so Weller did some contributing on that, but it was mainly Foxton, and basically their longtime producer Chris Parry. Uh, as well as the rest of the record label, basically dismissed it all as half-baked and substandard. You know, they just didn't think they were good enough. And that basically put a break on the whole recording of any new material. Really, the hope was, let's just give Weller some time. Let's just give him some time to find inspiration to write better songs. And so what he does uh, is to return to his hometown of Woking, and he spends much of his time listening to albums by The Kinks. And he picks upon the songwriting style of Ray Davis, which, uh, you know, his lyrics are often focused on specifically English themes and experiences. And so that really ignites a spark in Weller, like he's finally found something he can focus his attention on. And so he duly starts writing some new material and the band reconvene at the, at the time, newly opened R.A.K. Studios in London to record the songs. Some of those songs have already been fleshed out to begin with before they go into the studio, whilst others are actually kind of like you have the bare bones of the idea and they just kind of build it up collaboratively yeah. in the studio sessions. Yeah. But the, the other key difference here is that um, up until this album, the jam had had basically like two producers. You had Chris Parry, but also you had a song called Vic Coppersmith Heaven. And the thing about Chris Parry was that he was also an A&R guy as well. He had other bands to look after as well. So he was kind of part-time producer, part-time record label guy, really. You know, so yeah, his, yeah, yeah. his attention wasn't fully on the jam. And I think the, the band made the decision to say, look, let's just let Vic do the full-time producing on this. 
yeah. so he could be like a fresh pair of ears on the, on the songs. Yeah. And what Vic was able to do was to basically flesh out the band sound more fully than it had been on the previous two albums. So things like vocal harmonies and guitar overdubs had particular attention paid to, but also he improved the sound quality overall. You know, he made the vocals much clearer in the mix, for example. I mean, if you compare all mod cons, the sounding album to the first two, I think it's definitely a, a better quality sounding record, I think. Like you can, there's definitely a jump in quality. That's kind of like the story of making the album in terms of how it performs. So basically it gets released later in November 1978 and yep. it reaches number six in the album chart. So this becomes their first proper success, really. It's mega, terms. isn't it? It breaks yeah. the top 10 for the first yeah. time. And it's like leaps and bounds rather than this is the modern world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. It's got it's... some absolute belters on it as well, by the way. But anyway, yeah, go carry on, sorry. Yeah, no, so you're right. It does <laughs> It does shift over 100,000 copies and it gets certified gold. So immediately it's an improvement on the, the previous album. But interestingly, the singles as well. So the first single off the back of the album was actually a double A side and it reached number 25 in the top 40 so on side one you have a cover of David Watts by the Kinks and that's again sung by Bruce Foxton just because it was in his key rather than in Weller's so Weller kind of just sung on the bridge really so that's that's the main reason why Bruce sung on it and then on the other side you've got the Weller penned A-bomb in Wardour Street this this mental you know it's a great tune very angry both of those songs are actually pretty decent aren't they they're actually really good they're sort of like um classic you know before this you've got quite niche jam songs like you can like them but only if you're really really a fan whereas these yeah. are the you're starting to get into songs that people have actually heard this is the era of well-known jam songs for sure yeah yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely yeah and, and the follow-up single to this is down in a tube station at midnight which performs even better at number 15 and it's interesting there's a story behind this because Apparently Weller wasn't really happy with the arrangements on the song, and he was prepared to scrap it altogether. But Vic was able to rescue the track and persuade him otherwise, and oh, yeah. and it becomes yeah, it becomes one of the best known songs. Really, I actually always forget about this song. I don't know why. It's just like I don't know. It's just is it because it's is it because it's at the, it's it's at the it's at the back of the album, like almost at the end, I think, isn't it? Yeah, possibly. I mean, I, like, yeah, it's, it's the know, last song on the album. So it's never really, really been. Yeah, you sort of like you almost never get there. Yeah, um, but like, <laughs> but like, but like with the tube, no, but no, serious. Um, the um, <laughs> uh, at least at the moment, but I, I don't know what it is. It's just the thing is, right? So, uh, well, maybe we'll go into this later. Actually, I'll I'll, I'll save it for later. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Uh, yeah, part pa- for now. The, the, the yeah, yeah, yeah because we're, in the, we're still in the story mode, aren't we? Yeah, so go on. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so, so critically, as well as commercially, the album performs well. So a lot of the critics love it. They they think it's a massive jump in quality compared to previous albums. I mean, they in in particular they highlight like the maturity of their sound and the songwriting. So it's very much. I think to be fair, I mean, if you if you set the bar as low as you know, this is the modern world. It really was uh, almost a case of really overcoming low expectations, really, uh, when it came <laughs> to all mod cons. I think, uh, you know, yeah. got, the album got off to a bad start, you know, with not great songwriting, but eventually they managed to turn it around and, yeah, yeah, and, they, and, they, and they really delivered. It's interesting, if, if the NME, for example, they 
they rank this album as the second best album of 1978 at the time. But later in 2013, they would rank it 219 in their list of 500 greatest albums of all time. Wow. You know, not just in UK, of all time. How about that? So That's, that's, that's yeah. pretty mad. I mean, considering... Yeah, I, I actually... You know, I, I'm not... <laughs> I do occasionally wonder what everyone's banging on about when they say this is good <laughs> yeah. album. But, it's uh, very but, subjective. But, it is very but, good. But, yeah. but, like, I mean, it's, it, it's good. It, I think my, my issue is uh, because I've been listening to the jam for literally, well, since I was probably about 15 or 16, hmm. I've gone through all the phases and now I'm sort of back to the start type thing. So I don't know. Maybe, and I've never really listened to it as an album. I've always listened to the individual tracks rather than the album itself, which is a bit of a weird one. For example, to play through... Yeah, you know, I, I would probably choose one of the other ones, which is a bit weird, isn't it? Because this is supposed to be one of the best ones. But yeah, it isn't weird. I think it's just your personal preference. I mean, like you, I think the thing is, is that when you look at the Jam's career, I think actually you can make the the case that they are more well known for their singles than they are for their albums. I, like yeah, the, I like that. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. that's fair. They, they, that's they, they are more of a their albums are, band, yeah. <laughs> yeah, especially all mod cons, but most of their albums are actually quite stop starty. Like they don't really have a flow. Like yeah. all mod cons is difficult because well, I guess we'll go into more detail. But I always feel that when you start with the song all mod cons, it's kind of. <laughs> it's kind of like it's just not really a it doesn't really feel like an album starter you know i feel like it should start with like billy hunt or one of the other oh billy hunt's a great tune yeah yeah it's a little rude but yeah it's classic weller isn't it yeah i so it's funny because i think well i'll save that for later actually but it's interesting i'd want to let's touch quickly upon like how you got into the jam in the first place because I, I i know how i did and like for me it was a again it's a university based experience for me but like for you it sounded like it was much earlier so please tim timothy recall the time you first discovered the jam well it was 25 years uh, not 25 years jesus christ how old <laughs> 15 it must be 15 years 15 years hence and I think, I'm not really sure how I got into it, but basically, you know, I, I think I mentioned this on another episode, but my mum, especially, has always been into the um, the punk and post sort of pre, what's it called? The pub rock type thing and yeah. punk rock. So she had all these albums of all the various bands of that particular era. So they're just kind of like kicking around in the house. And my brother gradually got into listening to some of them. And I quite like the sound of some of them. And I don't know why, just kind of adopted it as a concept. And then... The jam quite appealed to me for some reason. I don't really know why. I think I quite like the look. Mm. And then we visited Carnaby Street. Yeah, you know, even though Carnaby Street obviously now is, is nothing like what it was then. But yeah, we went to a place called The Face, which is kind of kind of crappy kind of um, you know outlet place with all the generic mod stuff in. Mm. But I was like, from then on, I was just like, yeah, this is it. This is the thing for yeah. me. I don't know because it was just kind of like it made sense. It just kind of like you know I like quite like the style is distinctive and it's you know, a cool look and it's I, I actually you know funnily enough I mean, for all it's worth i actually already always thought that the mod look was actually the pinnacle of of looks in general i mean everything since then or before then is just a bit lame okay yeah like the sort of like you know long hair bell bottom hippie look never really appealed skinheads obviously are a bit more rough and ready you've obviously got all the other various looks like the punk look and the teddy boy look and the 1980s 
yeah i mean it's, it's all just kind of a bit like you, know, you wouldn't really necessarily wear it day to day whereas the mod look is actually you can sort of blend it across various types of situation and it just looks smart and it looks masculine as well so that was just really cool uh and then obviously the music was almost like a driver of that and i really got into the jam around that point like listen to everything all the time just like one song after another i would listen to repeatedly like just as like this is the song of this week or whatever yeah yeah i was just like obsessed basically it's just wild actually when looking back on it, it just seems kind of weird yeah. now it's like the songs that i would pick out as my favorites from the jam generally are um all the ones that sort of happened slightly after this album mm. but there are some good songs on this album but yeah, yeah. um just something about it about it that just appealed to me yeah but i mean how did you get into it then this is another MTV video <laughs> related <laughs> story. So this was around the time I'd started uni. So it was late 2008 and I was watching MTV Rocks, I think it was called. That's the channel. I don't think it exists anymore, but at the time it was like... Does MTV yeah. even exist anymore? It does, but it doesn't really do much music. It's more like reality TV and stuff. But <laughs> <sighs> Well, it is right, true though. Yeah. I mean, it's true. Yeah, yeah, no, I, think yeah, I can yeah. imagine, yeah. I mean, not, yeah. I've not watched it for ages, but what yeah. was I thought it was called Music TV. And yet... I know, I know, and yet, and yet, well, I mean, you should see what the Discovery Channel does nowadays. Nothing to do with, or even the History Channel, nothing to actually do with history. Yeah, history is... Conspiracy theories and stuff. Yeah, it's like back-to-back <laughs> -back things about World War II and Hitler, as far as I know. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, this is the entirety of history was 1931 to 1945 basically yeah, yeah. <laughs> um so i was just watching i think it was just i can't remember why this particular video was on there so it, it was that's entertainment by the jam you know you know what it was i think it was like um a playlist picked by noel gallagher of all people <laughs> i think it was like noel gallagher's picks I'm sorry, but you lose the bet then. I, yeah, I, you know, I, yeah. I didn't mention them. This yeah, time. yeah. So now, now it's me. Yeah, now, now I'm the one who ruined it. No, that was it. It's come back to me now. So, yeah, Zane Lowe. That was it. Zane Lowe was interviewing yeah. Noel Gallagher on his show, Gonzo. Zane Lowe. Yeah, oh, yes. wow, what a throwback. Yeah, yeah so Zane, it, This is the thing, right? Yeah, it all yeah. blends together. Yeah, it, it all blends does. together. Zane Lowe, Arctic Monkeys, Noel Gallagher, yeah. The Jam, yeah. The Who, whatever. Yeah, so this, so this is this is it. So this is around the times the Oasis have released "Dig Out Your Soul." You know, we'd obviously both gone to see them uh, live in Birmingham around this point. And anyway, so saying those interviewing Noel Gallagher off the back of all this, and so in between, like the conversations that they're having, there's like clips of like favorite tracks by Noel Gallagher. Yeah, his kind of playlist picks, and one of them is "That's Entertainment." It's the first time I've ever really seen a, a video, a music video by the Jam. And really the first time I even kind of, I just can't, I'm trying to think if I've even heard, if I had even really heard of the jam before this point, I might have done. But I think to me, it was, it was more like my proper first time. It's like, right, this is what the jam looked like. This is what they sound like. Okay. Yeah. And I just really liked the song. I, I loved it. But yeah, it's a good song. It's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, um, I think they played it, they played it on the rugby once, I think, when we were watching it back in, you know, like 20 years ago or something. Yeah. And I remember it just being in the background. It was actually a really good tune to have like to the rugby because it's like, all these kind of people just getting tackled or getting, yeah, absolutely pwned. Yeah. Um, and I was like, that's entertaining. <laughs> but also secondarily, secondarily, from a mod perspective, the, the look in that video is like absolutely on point because he's wearing a like light blue suit, I think, and like a paisley shirt. Yeah. It's decent, but anyway. I really liked his hair, actually. I, I just thought, wow, that's, yes, that's funny. It was, I've so never seen a Steve haircut. Marriott. It yeah. was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I found that out later, and I 
Yeah, I've never seen a haircut like that before. I think it was like the first time I even really knew what mod was or anything like that. Like yeah. it was, it was it's all, quite a distinctive look. Yeah, it was all new to me, really. And also, I really like the sound of the song. Yeah, it's very like early '80s production, and yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I just really liked it. And so, basically. I went on this massive spending spree of buying all of their albums on CD really? <laughs> and just listening to listening to their entire career. Yeah. I think what I did first was I got like a, a best of essentially, and and it was you know what as far as best ofs go, it was great because like the second disc had all these like great B sides on as well, like really great B sides. Like, was that the very best of the jam? No, I was a different one. You know what? Because because I remember my mum my mum had the very best of the jam, which is like just. Yeah, it's a great musical CD, but the picture on the front was just like, what the hell is this? They they look like fucking like extras from from Friends. They're not wearing oh, the look. Yeah, it's really funny. I, I, I was outraged at the time. It yeah, no, it's called um, it's called the Jam Gold, and it's a. Uh, uh, Let me review the album cover for you. Yeah, yeah, because um, they're not. Yeah, it's got a picture of all three of them on there looking. They're not really suited up or anything. Weller's got his hair fairly short. He's looking a bit confused. He's got like um, he's <laughs> yeah, got like he's yeah. got he's got like a Fred Perry jacket on with the yeah, jam yeah, badge yeah, on the front. Yeah. Um, and then you've That's got fair. you've got Rick Buckler looking at sidelines with a fag in his mouth, almost like yeah. catching someone's eye or whatever. Um, see, where where are they supposed to be exactly? They're supposed to be like it looks like they're standing outside the entrance to a courtroom or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it, it looks like they it looks like they've just probably been photoshopped. Maybe, but like, um, yeah, disc one's got like all of the singles on essentially. Disc two's got like some great like B sides on, such as um, Pop Art's poem, A Solid Bond in Your Heart, No One ah, in yes, the World. Yeah. You know, there's some really like years ago when I when I played with mates from school in you know, like an acoustic trio, and we did a lot of like gigs. Um, I covered No One in the World. Like, I, I, and I had this guy come up to me afterwards. And he said, "Yeah, man, that's a really good cover." You know, like he said, "No, no one's ever." I've never heard anyone cover that before. Like, I'm, you know, he's a really big jam fan and everything. It's like, yeah. oh, wow, you know, it's, it's just stuff like that that really makes you think about like the power of music, doesn't it? And so, yeah. uh, you've, you've actually just kicked off a massive throwback bell in my in my head about Solid Bond in Your Heart because that was like actually a really strong Star Council song, and the video is really strong as well. Oh God, it's right. I'm going off on a massive tangent here. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. But, um, but yeah, add that to my playlist now. Actually. Yeah, yeah. This best of was like my introduction to the jam. And then yeah, off the yeah. back of that, I wanted to listen to more like the album songs. So I bought all these CD albums as well. So these are all like the re-releases from 1997. So when they, so when the vinyl kind of made it onto CD format for the first time. And, um, and yeah, so that, that's how I got familiar with the entire catalogue. And basically all mod cons became the album for me that I liked the most as a consumer oh, really? <laughs> experience. So that's how that's my story of how I came yeah. to like all mod cons. Because I think if I was to rank them, you know, I'd say, oh yeah, all mod cons would be at the top for me. I'd probably really? okay. I'd probably put sound effects maybe second or third from that. Because I think wow. I think Setting Suns has got some great tracks on there as yeah. well. And yeah. obviously in the city as well is a, is a great uh, great one. I think yeah. this is Modern World can definitely be at the bottom. And obviously, yeah, yeah, like the you know, the number one rated album, The Gift, is almost all garbage. I've noticed. It is. I'm glad I'm not the only one who thinks that. <laughs> <laughs> it's not actually that good. Like I don't think I really don't think it's a great album at all. Yeah. Like, I think like yeah. you buy it because it's got Town Called Malice. Yeah, yeah. 
Oh, Carnation's a great song. That is a great song, Carnation. I, I actually quite liked just who is the five o'clock hero as well, but not yeah. that. I mean, this is all getting a bit bit niche now, isn't it? Yeah. But but yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. It's, it's kind of weird, isn't it? It's almost like when bands get to that point, it's almost like they don't even need to try. It's yeah. like, yeah, this is obviously going to go to number one. Plus, also, didn't they release it like just after they'd announced a breakup as well? So it was like almost like a collector's edition. Yeah, it's a bit like dig out, it's a bit like dig out your soul. Where they're like, yeah. oh, well, by the way, this might be the last one, so get it while you can. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is the era of the jam where they were just like commercially dominant. Like they were just right at their peak. They couldn't get any bigger. And even after they broke up, I mean, the, the record label still cashing in on their popularity by yeah. releasing like, you know, retrospective just collections of songs or whatever. I think one of them was called Snap or something. Um, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. just like really kind of random names. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, with like an exclamation mark next to it. And it's got like... Yeah. um it's got like a slowed down version of Avon Water Street. It's like a slower tempo one. I actually prefer that version. Really? Yeah, because you hear more of the cowbell at the start. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I forgot that, that was in there, actually. Yeah, give me more cowbell. And actually a throwback to the Blue Oyster cult from earlier. Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. Oh my God, it all makes sense. Mind blown. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Might as well end it there. Um, I, told you, I told you they were somehow connected. <laughs> that cowbell. But, That's um, where they got the idea. That's where they got the idea. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, so that, that's interesting how we both came across the jam in general, but also like all mod cons. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, we're both obviously massive fans of the jam. Let's talk about the themes on this album, lyrically speaking, because... Yeah, this is going to be, this is yeah, going to be massive. It, to be honest, this is what I'm all about on this episode. Yeah, Apart from it, obviously commenting on the fact that the look... Yeah. It's almost as good as almost as important as the uh, as the music, but yeah. Well, to, 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 just before we do that, actually, well, you yeah. talked about the look of the band. The jam is the reason why I bought myself a Rickenbacker, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. and I've still got it, and I will never ever, I will never ever get rid of it. I think if the day I sell my Rickenbacker is the day that I am in very bad financial straits. <laughs> wow. I will. I, that's how much it means to me. It's such a great looking guitar. It sounds great. It's just. It's the bee's knees. The only thing I'd say about it is it's not easy to play lead guitar on it because it, it, the strings on it are so stiff. But as like a rhythm instrument, it's fantastic, definitely. Is that is that a feature of Rickenbackers in general or is it just your one? I can't comment on the other Rickenbacker guitars, but the right. particular model I've got is basically the updated version of the what's called the 330. That's the one that Weller would have used, albeit mine's in Midnight Blue, not in the red fire glow that, yeah. that, uh, that Weller originally used. But uh, on, on yeah, just on that particular model like the action on the strings like it's quite it's actually a real challenge to bend the strings on it i mean maybe my finger strength isn't good enough i don't know but like uh, compared to other guitars i've got it's not as easy to bend strings on it so to do solos on it and stuff it's it's a it's a, yeah. it's a lot more it's not impossible but it's just it's just a lot harder but yeah i mean i've i've like, i've used that guitar quite many times on gigs and uh, i've always had people glancing looks at it and you go oh yeah that's a nice guitar it's, like, it's, a, stu- yeah. it's a stunning it's a stunning instrument like the yeah. I, I, am I am I right in saying it's a sort of a 1960s style it is. Yeah, Rick, Rickenbackers yeah. were, were popular then yes. but then through the 70s they sort of lagged a bit and then well I brought them back almost yeah exactly so I mean that's kind of part of this revivalist tag he gets isn't it it's like you know the, the, the Rickenbacker was associated with the Beatles really primarily to begin with 
as a 60s that makes guitar. sense because because he was big uh, inspired by the beatles yeah which, which i don't think we, which we haven't really mentioned that much actually but, but he, that was like his early inspiration wasn't it yeah but, in, but interestingly pete townsend used a rickenbacker in the early part of the who as well he yeah. actually uses one in, in a video from our generation if you, if you look at it that he's using yeah. rickenbacker there. but really yeah. it's, it's interesting because i think pete townsend was more of a strat guy a fender strat guy or, i don't know um yeah but like yeah i don't you don't often see him using a, Rick, a rickenbacker nowadays like i think yeah yeah, it's 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 an iconic guitar, and, and yeah, that was that was the jam's impact on me stylistically. I just had to get it, and I I saved up for years, and I finally got it. And I was, I mean, it's a very expensive guitar. Like, a, like yeah. I've never spent that much on a single piece of music equipment since. <laughs> yeah. I, I think I think are they, are they not all made in one factory in California or something? Or yeah, they were at some point. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you, you're paying the American price. You're you're paying yeah. for that American flag, really. You know, yeah, it's, yeah, it, it yeah. is. It, uh, yeah, they're not mass produced the same way like Fenders and Gibsons are yeah. and all that stuff. So, do you want me to talk about the look for it just to a couple of minutes? Yeah, go for it. Yeah. And so, in my mind, I always had them categorized across. There's probably about three or four distinct phases. Basically, there's the initial phase where they are, they have their probably most iconic look, which is black suits, black ties, white shirts, and they yeah. had those black and white shoes, mm-hmm. sort of almost like '50s style shoes. And then the red Rickenbackers, which is obviously a very distinctive look for the time because everybody else is wearing safety pins in their ears and, um, you know, whatever, leather jackets, I guess. That's their sort of first phase, which is quite a cool look. You know, not really one that you would necessarily mimic, but like they kind of stand out. Then they sort of drift away from that in the second and third and fourth albums, I think, towards. And and Weller really gets into his sort of like mod phase, I suppose, where he's wearing like... He's much more casual when he goes on the stage. Yeah, I know this from watching all the bloody videos of their live performances and DVDs and stuff. But like, he's much more casual when he goes on stage, but he's always like, but it's somehow still impeccable. He's got style, hasn't he, that guy? Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and he's still got the old, he's still got the old <laughs> Rickenbacker, but it's always like a little bit different. So he'll have like yeah. a, he had one with a, like a pop art sort of wham on it, if you remember. Yeah, from you the know. 80s, yeah. It's yeah. pretty cool. So it's always like pretty distinctive look. And then, and then obviously, uh, you know, it would sort of turn up on stage as always like a button-down collar, like paisley shirt, and then his haircut would always be like the either the original mod kind of like mop kind of look mm. with the straight fringe, or then switch to a Steve Marriott centre parting type split fringe kind of look, and then towards the end, it's sort of lapsing into this kind of like European weird stuff, which Tsar Council was all about. But still, <laughs> you know, it's still still yeah. kind of cool, but just not quite. For me, I never really thought like, yeah, I don't know. I'm probably not going to go there. I just look like an idiot. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, so like, I think in a style council, he's like wearing like you know like an Italian trench coat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But, but like, but then, but then he starts doing really weird things with his hair and like you know like um, wearing like ridiculous loafers that are like that you know that like the the two tone shoes. <laughs> yeah. But like, yeah. but like as loafers, and you're yeah. like, well, why why would you ever? You know, this is just so impractical. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's, it's funny. His his haircuts could always rotate between like quite long fringe kind of looks and then almost like going almost complete skinhead at times like really short yeah. but always yeah. like looking stylish always looking mod driven so um yeah. it's interesting because i think um i think like by the time the the early 80s rolled around they they got like um i think they got like sponsorship from lonsdale as well yeah like, i remember like rick buckler was like um because i've got his biography and he mentioned about like the lonsdale sponsorship like they had uh like he was wearing the lonsdale jumper but also um but they got sponsorship from other music brands as well. So, I mean, obviously, like, Weller was just cycling through Rickenbackers left, right and centre. Um, yeah. You know, so, uh, yeah, whereas I think, like, Bruce, 
when he initially used like Rickenbacker basses and then he went more towards Fender. So, I mean, that must be great. I must like for me, that's a dream come true. Like you're in a, <laughs> you're in a successful band and like you just get, guitar you, you want. you're given quality instruments. It's like here, just have anything you want. And be like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I'll take that. Thank you very much. That'd be, that'd be an amazing position to be in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as you, as you've demonstrated by going out and buying your own one, it kind yeah. of works. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, it's yeah. Uh, I, I yeah. I, if you want something bad enough, you'll get it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Part of the reason why I'm banging on about the look is first of all because it's important to me but also secondly because it's sort of people say or i guess it's kind of true but it's inspired a mod revival it genuinely did yeah i mean you had legions of kids wearing parkas and whatnot just yeah. turned up to their gigs and kind of a good and a bad thing i think for Wellington, yeah. you know because i think he was <laughs> yeah. just like i just want to be an individual doing my own thing and all of a sudden you've just got a sea of greed it's like it's like they're sort of like the the uh, God, it's getting really niche now. But basically, yeah, when it comes to mod, there's like the generic mod look, where it's like you know, wear a Parker and a pair of Levi jeans, I guess, and, and whatever. Mm. And and then then there's like Weller, who's like actually thought about it and basically obsessing over what's in his wardrobe. Whereas clearly, these people are just wearing it because he's wearing it. Yeah, I think like Weller is stylish to the point where he could feature like on the cover of GQ magazine or something. Kind of, you know? <laughs> whereas like. I don't know, like within the fan base, you could argue that, yeah, that's probably what sets apart some of the fans. Like, uh, to be fair, I would consider yourself to be quite stylish, to, to, to be honest, Tim. Like, I think oh, you, thanks, take, you, take, you take the style seriously, I think. Like, I, I don't think I've ever seen you wearing a parka with Levi's. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I think, like... Well, uh, well it's, it's, yeah. it, if I did, it would be, like, on a casual day. I, I, the, thing, the thing about it is, right, okay, I think, I think I'm, not, I'm not trying to... You know, this is just going to sound a little bit pretentious, but basically... It's like quite exciting. It's almost like if you enjoy wearing it, then you sort of like start creatively doing different stuff. Yeah. Whereas obviously, you know, if, if you're just wearing it because it's like your band and, and it's like a football shirt or something, hmm. you know what I mean, it's, it's become sort of like, oh, I've noticed this is my uniform now. Yeah. Um, which is kind of a bit, it sort of defeats the point because it's theoretically it's supposed to be, you know, modern and, and hip and cool and distinctive basically. But yeah. Yeah. No, I, I get what you mean. Like, yeah. Your style is part of your identity, isn't it? It's how you see yeah, yourself and so. how you want the world to see you as well, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it sounds of... shallow, doesn't it? But but, well, but, it's, but essentially, it's nothing to do with anybody else in some ways. It's like, well, you know, obviously it is because everybody sees it and you know that. But like, on the other hand, it's also like, I'm sort of doing this because, yeah, I quite like it. I don't know. It's, it's, it's really weird, actually, thinking about it from this perspective because I haven't really thought about it like this. I've just kind of done it. Well, I think that means it just comes naturally to you then. Like, you're, you're, you're being yeah. authentic to yourself rather than just doing something that's yeah. considered popular or, or whatever, you know. Like, I, I, don't, yeah. I, I don't think having your own sense, sense of style is, or caring about your own sense of style is necessarily shallow. I think it's just expressing your individuality, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. So, and, that, and that is important, I think. And then I think, like, around this time when I was listening to the jam, like, I was, I think I was very much aping, like, 90s fashion before it became fashionable yeah, yeah, I, was like, yeah, yeah. I was like trying to dress like i was in a Britpop band you know like wearing a leather jacket or a denim jacket and... yeah but it was quite cool i thought the way you did it was quite cool actually yeah. i mean not you know uh, this is turning into a bit of a compliment fest but you're a bit like what <laughs> <laughs> do you know what i mean like yeah like you know i, I did actually this is the thing, right? If I can imagine Weller wearing it, then I think it's cool. And I could imagine Weller wearing what you were wearing. So that's why I thought it was good. <laughs> that sounds really completely backwards logic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, st- I think for me, like, I still have that sense of style of like, yeah, I like, yeah. I like jackets. I love like wearing leather yeah, yeah. or like wearing denim, you know, and then combines yeah, yeah, yeah. things, you know. Yeah, no, I think so. I think it's, it's clear to say that 
you know the jam has both has had an impact on both of us both like stylistically and and, yeah. and musically so yeah what a I mean, and to be honest, I think this is the first band that we've properly like gone into the the real personal impact on it. Like, I think more than yeah. any other band we've explored, like this has really like impacted on um, on us in in ways beyond just liking the music. It's also like a a style thing as well. So yeah, I would probably say the same for Oasis a little bit. Yeah, um, although it was much later. But yeah, yeah, no, I know you mean. I, I think also. I think probably also the the Oasis attitude as well, but yeah, just just while we're on the topic of influences from bands, but like because Weller is very much a very I mean we'll go on to it in a minute, but he's very much miserable, whereas mm. Oasis are much more like <laughs> care, kind of like you know who cares type thing. They're much more like carefree, much more yeah. devil may care type attitude. But yeah, it's interesting because I mean when the Gallagher brothers initially kind of rocked a bit of a mod haircut, didn't they? Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah, but, I, mean, but, I think but, that might have been by accident rather than anything yeah, else. But... Yeah, I mean, because that's the thing. I wouldn't. I'd never consider the Oasis to be mods or even have anything to do with mod culture because you know they weren't into that kind of music, and also they didn't really. Yeah, beyond the haircut, the rest of the look, well, at least in the 90s, was like basically baggy, you know. Yeah, like, rare, it rarely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, the, the, probably the most iconic one, for what it's worth, from my point of view, was on the front of Be Here Now. Um, Liam Gallagher has this brown parka and he's yeah. wearing like desert boots. And it's just it's really cool. But that's probably about as far as they went. To be fair, if you, if you look at Liam's pretty green label, I think there were yeah, a lot yeah, of that, that, mod, yeah. wasn't there? So I think, well, yeah, maybe, I, yeah, it's interesting. Maybe it, isn't it? It, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it is that. But this is what I'm saying. You know, I think in some ways, because mod is, it has that, it's not like, you know, Saturday Night Fever sort of like, uh, <laughs> or like, you know, any of these other, or the, you know, any of these other kind of fashions, it sort of has a lasting appeal. So it, it's almost like stylish by default. Um, yeah. So it's kind of like, you can see why people might gravitate towards it, even if they're not really been sort of fully indoctrinated into it if that makes sense yeah to, to be fair i think you've got a point there because if you if you think about mods like fashion it seems to have stood the test of time in the sense that you know people can wear it without being consciously retro yeah. or revivalist yeah, yeah, yeah. about anything do you know what i mean it's like they just yeah, like absolutely. they just like style whereas like if anyone was to dress like generally like how people dressed in the 70s or the 80s were that would look more like a conscious kind of revivalist yeah. choice almost but like because obviously you have you know mod came out in the, in the 60s as you know in, in its original guise but then like yeah you had the revival yeah. in the late 70s but then like it, it's just kept going over the decades since like in various shapes and forms so i think yeah. you've touched upon something there which is interesting like it has become somewhat timeless now as i think i guess at the time in the late 70s if you were trying to rock the mod look, yeah, it probably would have been a bit strange because it's like, well, why are you dressing like that? You know, that's a 60s thing, mate. You know, what are you doing? Yeah. Kind of thing. <laughs> you know, no one, no one would say that yeah. now at all, really. Yeah, yeah, just, yeah. Sort of just a, another form of style, so. Yeah, I think some, some people do know what it is when they see it, but yeah, it's quite rare. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, I guess that comes off the, the style of it all. Shall we talk about the lyrical themes? You know, yeah, I definitely. It's, yeah, yeah, it's uh, massive. Yeah, this 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 is a this is a massive part in itself. And I think when we were talking yesterday on, on WhatsApp about like themes, you know, there's a bit of crossover between what we both found. I mean, uh, yeah. the kind of things I I noticed was that essentially, whilst the album does continue this whole angry young man kind of theme of the previous albums, I think the key yeah. difference here is that you now have these character studies 
that you have for the yeah. first time. So it's like, for example, you've got this very sneering attack on the this well-to-do stockbroker commuting into London each day and Mr. Clean. Yeah. You've got this downtrodden working man, you know, this fantasist who hates his boss in Billy Hunt. Yes. You've got this um, has-been rock star in To Be Someone. And even in like, you know, down in Tube Station Midnight, you've got this story of a man who gets mugged by right-wing thugs in the London Underground yeah. whilst on his way back home with a, some takeaway curry. Although, you yeah. know, I think we've talked before about the, the actual logic of how one <laughs> down, down at down, well one does, does the, i think the underground does run at midnight but i think back it then does, it does now it does now it but does like, now it, but only, only very recently yeah yeah, yeah. Very recently that would that yeah. would, that would but, also, happened. but also i mean why are you eating so late yeah. <laughs> i mean why are you having a it's curry bad, at midnight yeah. i mean it's, it's funny when i when i i mean quick sidebar but like you know when i when I was reading some of the yeah, the critics' views of the album, they, they really picked apart the lyrics and that's and they're like, you know, there's yeah. a lot of it that doesn't make sense. But at the same time, yeah. you almost don't care because it still paints a really a really interesting picture. I mean, like yeah. it, it is an angry album. Like Weller yeah. does yeah. take swipes at like the music industry in general and the title track. He like in A Bomb and Wardour Street, he takes umbrage at unnecessary violence of the punk scene in general. Is, he, is that what he's talking about? Well, Cause, apparently, cause know, yes. Because obviously, apparently, yeah. obviously, in, in Wardour Street, obviously, is is uh, quite famous for well, just being a bloody nightmare. Of a, you know, I mean, it's, mm. it's sort of better now. But like, mm. it's, funnily enough, when most of this was written. Yeah, London was a bit of a shithole. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Where, where, yeah, and 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 yeah, it's a bit like New York when you when you hear stories about New York in the 1980s, it's a pretty nasty place actually. Yeah. Like you know, just from a personal perspective, I know all this bit near Fulham, down by the sort of riverside near um, the World's End estate, and um, where Lots Road Power Station is. If, if anyone wants to Google that, that almost all used to be either condemned buildings old warehouses and essentially either squats drug dens and and and, um, and prostitutes essentially and, and the same with covent garden amusingly even though it's now like probably one of the most expensive pieces of real estate in yeah. the country but it used to be similar it used to be it used to be horrible mm. and 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 wardour street actually now is actually still pr- like if you go down there it's it's got quite a lot of sex shops and things like this there so it, back then it must have been like horrific, <laughs> yeah. um, unless you're into that, obviously. But so it was interesting because I think on the one hand he's he's sort of like taking aim at because he got annoyed about gentrification in bricks and mortar back in yeah. the first album. Yeah, he also got annoyed. You know, he's obviously taking a swipe at people like Mr. Clean and David Watts. Yeah, but then he's also attacking how shit London is in some yeah. ways. Like yeah, but you're you're talking about the violence of the punk scene. What, yeah, what, where what, does that come in? What I've read into this, looking at my research, was that so some of the, some of the lyrics he mentions, like the vortex floor, for example, when he's trying on the vortex yes. floor. So the, yeah, vorte- yeah. the vortex was a, a club where yeah, punk yeah. bands would play, and um, essentially, like you know, I think, I think well, apparently what Paul was taking aim at was the fact that you go to these punk gigs, and also when he's playing gigs himself, just see this. So many fights. Yeah, it's yeah. always fights all the yeah. time. And so many, you know, you, on a previous episode, you were talking about how when the specials were playing, like yeah. in, um, near your hometown, and like there'd be, you know, these guys, you know, like in their forties or fifties, you know, still trying to have a fight as if it was Sit like seventies. Yeah. And then this is this is the era. This is the era yeah. of, yeah, of, yeah. of that where like gigs were, you know, you take your life in your own hands. Really, you know, when you go to these things, and yeah. um, and I think Weller just thought like, why is this? Happening? Why? Like, what's what's <laughs> yeah. the point? Like, why can't we all just 
you know, have a good time yeah. and stuff, you know, you don't have to beat each other up. So I think he, yeah. apparently he, it was, this is interesting though, because like, I never thought of the song as this up until very recently when I was doing my research on this. I always thought yeah. it was painting this nightmarish apocalyptic vision of, you know, a dictatorship Britain, you know, where, you know, law and orders, you know, like I love the line where he says, law and order takes a turn for, for the worse in the shape of a size yeah. 10 boot. I, yeah, but yeah, it could have yeah. been referring to a Doc Martin for all I know. Yeah, yeah, I guess. Yeah. So, so it kind of makes sense, but I think it has a, it's one of those clever songs, I guess, in the sense that you can read into it what you want. Yeah. And I and I just love the energy and the pace of it. Like it's um, a good song. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's fascinating actually because I um I was speaking to my mum and dad actually a couple of days ago, and they they yeah they started talking about some they mentioned it was just some random tangent about somebody they knew, some night they used to go to regularly, and they apparently they're all yeah in the nineteen seventies, and they there was always a fight there. It was just known that there was always going to be a fight at this particular place. Yeah. It's just weird, isn't it? Like, it's kind of like this kind of concept where it's like the 1970s and they're just, there's always going to be a fight, which yeah. is obviously what, what I was talking about, I guess, well, as, well, as well as obviously the other stuff that you're talking about. But yeah. yeah, you're absolutely right. I think like, even if you look at the cover that they did of David Watts, like, it, yeah. you know, the way, I mean, it gives it a much nastier edge in a way. Like it's, it's, well, it's got All this... of these songs are pretty violent actually, aren't they? Yeah. Not all of them, but like, you know, I mean, Billy Hunt is, I mean, yeah. right, theoretically, uh, a one Wardour Street down in the tube station at midnight, obviously. Um, yeah, but it's clean, yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely, yeah. I mean, you know, the line where he says, you know, because I hate you and your wife, and if I get the chance, yeah. I'll fuck up your life. I mean, yeah, yeah it's it's or oh, stick your face in the grind, you know, yeah, this yeah, like yeah, it, yeah. you know, really like the picture that Weller paints of Britain at this time is of a Britain like where like if you walk down the street there's a kicking waiting for you around the corner do you know what I mean like it's very it is very violent and I think that doesn't happen in a vacuum like I think he was reflecting what he was witnessing at the time and his his own discomfort with it and I think that's what's so effective about the lyrics on this album is that it it does these character studies but also it, it uses like language that any listener could really understand actually and it does he does hone in on issues of class and the threat of violence it's all very it's all very socially observational so I think like if you were to like if you're trying to tell someone like what was Britain like in the late 70s you might want to show them this album as an an example of that I mean don't go get me wrong it, it, it probably might skew their viewpoint to think well it must have been a horrible time. I mean, in some ways it was. It probably it's probably was. Yeah, but, but, this so, is what I'm saying, right? Yeah. So go on, sorry, go on. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, I'm just trying to say, like, you know, you, you know, this would probably this probably wouldn't give you a balanced perspective on it, but it would certainly give you a perspective on what it must have been like, particularly like, yeah, as you say, in London, you know, where there's yeah, I mean, there's there's gonna be because if you think about it, this is the time of even before Thatcher. You know, this is the time of deindustrialization. This is the time where the world that everyone knew up until that point was falling apart, essentially. All, the, all these old certainties were crumbling and uh, it was manifesting itself in different ways, you know, through like the anger of the punk movement and, you know, the, yeah. the way the unions were, you know, about about pay and all these things. You know, there's, there's so many violent things going on. And, you know, I think Weller captures it, you know, in this album to an extent. But yeah, so you're about to say. Yeah, I was going to say, it's just, what, what is the positive here? Like, it's just fucking desperate. Like, as far as I know, the late 1970s, although for some reason, Weller is always, you know, people always talk about Weller as if he's talking about Thatcherism. But obviously Thatcherism didn't really start until no. probably late 79. And then probably didn't even come into effect until probably a couple In of years later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, you, you know, this is, this is bullshit. This is all 70s stuff. This is all, yeah, yeah. you know, it's, it's just desperate, man. It's just horrific. Like, I don't think somebody 
who is our generation or, or younger or whatever can properly come to terms with how horrific this situation yeah. is when you piece it all together in your mind it's like okay so one of the most expensive parts of london that now was a place where people squatted and basically got away with all kinds of petty crimes yeah you couldn't almost couldn't go on a night out without being beaten up there are like three day weeks you know in terms of i know and obviously there's the ted heath thing so it's sort of going back a bit but i'm um, you know it wasn't exactly out of the woods there are strikes all the time there's all this like really political uproar as well because the national yeah. front is out which obviously is what he's talking about in the down tube station at midnight yeah the national front is sort of rising because it's sort of like people are looking for other options essentially and it's just it's just a disaster zone i can't even fathom you know this is like it's horrific i can't even fathom what it must be like yeah it's, it's, it's interesting because like uh, i mean honestly it was, it was a it was a decade for great music as well but uh, equally uh, well yeah it's, it's yeah. like so, you know, in a socially and economically it was a very challenging decade <laughs> Yeah, dark, dangerous, and the end violent. So I think this album does capture that really. And as you say, it's, it's hard for our generation to relate to that because we we've grown up in a very different time, grown up in the world that Thatcher and Blair created for us, really. And you know, our experiences reflect that really more than the than what came before. But yeah. I, I think it's sort of slightly weird in that context that while I will be talking about, yeah, Mr. Clean. Mm. I mean, I know when you read when you read the notes on this, it's, yeah, he's talking about a stockbroker or whatever, mm. a wealthy stockbroker commuting in from wherever. Yeah. Like Thatcher unleashed the city. Yeah. So where is the stockbroker going? Well, it's interesting because when I did my research on this, he Weller said that apparently he noticed like around around like the edges of Woking at the time, there's like a suburban belt of like yeah. you know people who'd work in the city. So they didn't yeah. live in a city, but they'd work in a city. And like yeah, the, yeah. the kind of the financial elite, really. And they would retreat yeah. to the suburban. Yeah. And, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and, they'd, yeah. and they'd commute in by train and um, bus or whatever and go work in a city. And I think that's what Weller was, t- who Weller was taking aim at, really. I think he was this character study of, you know, a guy who's got, you know, he's well to do. He lives a clean life. You know, his parents are proud of him. You know, yeah. he, he get, he, there's the annual office dude and the <laughs> getting pissed at the annual office dude goes yeah. to the records. Um, and yet, and then you've got this kind of, the, almost a narrator is this guy who's kind of almost observing him, you know, from a different class standpoint and going like, yeah. you know, I, you know, I hate you basically. I, I you know, yeah. I, I, and if I got the chance, I'd, I'd kick the shit out of you in the street. Yeah. You know, it's a very it's pretty, pretty, yeah, pretty inexplicable. A totally unprovoked rage at this mm. person is obviously. Well, I guess it's probably just because he's it's, living a better life, I suppose, in some ways. Yeah, it's pure, it's pure class war, really. That's yeah, that's, yeah, that's it what is. The song, yeah, song, yeah. The song is. It's yeah, it's yeah. Uh, it's the most kind of jealous. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I, I remember like how someone I used to work with. Um, Years ago, he said, like, you know, it's a difference between like the Americans and the British in terms of how they view people who are wealthier than them is, is interesting. Like in the States, yeah. it's almost like someone who's wealthier than you, you'd kind of look up to them and go, like, yeah, you know, I want to be like that guy. Yeah, it's yeah, inspiring. Yeah. Whereas in, in in Britain, it's very much like, oh, you lucky bastard, you know, yeah, like, fuck you, that you, guy. yeah, yeah, like you don't, you, <laughs> it's, it's very, and that's that's almost part of just the British culture, isn't it? Like, you know, I, 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 yeah, do you think it's British culture? I don't know, yeah, I, I guess yeah. so. I mean, I think it depends on your outlook, but yeah, yeah. You, you're probably right. I mean, by the looks of it, well as getting into it, which, which I think is kind of is interesting because obviously, as we, I think we discussed by text before the episode, I thought it was interesting how I think almost everybody is a Mr. Clean now. Yeah, I think the. What do you reckon? Is that total bull crap or? 
Well, I think like the traditional... <laughs> is, that a, is that a quote for the T-shirt? <laughs> if you think back to when Weller's making this album, you know, even though the old industries are crumbling and there's still this very clear sense of class identity. Yeah. You know, and like working class identity was often tied up with, you know, the old industries of mining and steel and shipbuilding and whatnot, but also, yeah, yeah. Your, your factories and whatnot. But yeah. as, those, as those things start to erode and the, the nature of our economy gradually changes over the decades, the identity of what it means to be working class or, or, and or middle class is, is really become less obvious. You know, you could, I think you could argue that the middle class has definitely grown over the last few decades, particularly in part because like the sheer number of people going to university is a lot, lot bigger than it was back then. And that's been also a deliberate policy of previous governments to try and like, you know, in a sense of like, we want people to be part of what's called the knowledge economy. We want people upskilled and we think like academia is a, is a way to do that. But like, if you look at like what constitutes like working class jobs nowadays, like it's not, it's not really, it's less, much less to do with manufacturing and it's all tied up in, in other industries altogether. I mean, we're primarily a services driven economy now, nowadays really, aren't we? So, you know, and it's interesting because the BBC, I remember they did like this study a few years ago about reassessing class identity altogether like they came up with these new terms just like um precariat so it's like this notion of like you live in precarious like financial conditions so like you may you may have like you might actually have like you know you might have like a decent job but like it still doesn't pay enough to really like help you like live comfortably for example or like it's um it's like the gig economy like you've got no stable guaranteed income like you're always constantly trying to secure the next bit of income you know that kind of thing and, and, and to be honest, the way popular culture is nowadays, you know, the, with things like reality TV and everything, yeah. like it's very homogenized compared to what it was back then. I think like back in the 70s, your identity and your culture was more reflective of the class you were in to an extent, whereas like nowadays, it's a lot more homogenized to an extent and it's less obvious. So really almost this album is a time capsule in itself. It doesn't really reflect the world we live in now. We live in a very different Britain. I mean, and, you know, we've talked about London itself, like how completely different it is now to what it was back then. It's hard It's hard to imagine it, really, but... Um, yeah, it is. I, yeah. I think so. I mean, I, I actually originally thought we could potentially title this episode The Triumph of Mr. Clean, but maybe that's a bit too close to the mark. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, like, um, when we do a Libertines episode, I think we'll probably mention this again, but I think also they, they sort of... Because obviously the Libertines have this sort of, I don't know, there's something about when I read about the Libertines, for example, they seem to be on the very edge of the end of it almost, like this other world, which we're obviously seeing in Weller's lyrics as well. And and then and then beyond that, it's alien to us. So it must have gone somewhere between 2021 and 1992. And it's just, in, I find it fascinating. It's just this totally different cultural aspect, which almost no longer applies you know this sort of idea that you you can you work in your town and you live in your town and your family and your friends are all around your town you probably work in some kind of manual job of some kind or or a factory of some kind or locally to now it's almost like we we rove the country as people like here we go to university somewhere else i mean not all of us obviously (laughs) a much larger percentage Um, of the population yeah, yeah 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 
and I wonder what, what that effect has on, on culture in general, given that yeah. we're all going through an institution, you know, institutions which are yeah. Yeah, relatively similar. Whereas yeah. back in the day, obviously, it would just be school and then you're out and then you just go and do some stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's how it was in, in the old days, really. It's like, yeah. you know, you finish school, you find a trade off, and, and off you go. Really. Off you go, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But that, that's, that's definitely no longer the case, really. It's a much more yeah. mixed picture. And yeah, I mean, I mean, basically, I, I think it's fair to say that probably about half of young people generally try and go through university nowadays. I mean, you know, back when we were at school, you know, it was very much pushed upon us. This is something you must do. <laughs> this is the dream we're selling you. Like you must do it. <laughs> you know, that, that, and then it's yeah. true. Like that, that, that's, that's just, that was just policy and culture yeah. of the time. And it still yeah. is really to yeah, a large yeah, extent. Yeah. lyrical themes of the albums. I mean, we've talked a lot about the violence and the, and the kind of reflection of culture at the time and everything, but like there are some, there are some love songs in there as well. Yes, you've absolutely. Got like, yeah. You've got like English Rose, you've got Fly, It's Too Bad. I think the latter two are probably, I would say the, like, the weaker, <laughs> they're probably the weaker of the songs yeah. On, yeah, on the yeah. album. Like I, I could, you know, I know, I know I've said before that I, you know, I like this album as a whole, but like if I had to skip a couple of songs it probably would be fly i think okay. it's too bad i like musically i, I like the song yeah. musically and actually if you listen to the um there's a bit in it that is basically like the, the chords are complete rip off of she loves you yeah 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 it, honestly <laughs> yeah yeah let's li literally listen to them side really by listen side yeah, yeah listen to them side by side they are identical i mean it's not the first time weller rips off the beatles he does it probably like two or three times i think in yeah, his, uh, yeah. his jam career but like english rose is a, is you know it's, it's kind of the best of those love songs i think it's very yeah it's very stand out because it's just an acoustic number and uh, you know, you've almost got this kind of whooshing wind noise towards the end of the songs. It almost sounds otherworldly, yeah. and and yeah, it does paint this picture of old fair England. You know, I'm returning yeah, to yeah. my to my one true love in England. You know, no matter where I go, nothing yeah. will ever capture my heart like the England I I hail from. You know, so yeah. um, and that's kind of part of the whole yeah, the, the culture, yeah, the English culture vibe that that you get in the in the lyrics. Um, I think also um, Weller did really well on the marketing of that song as well. Although I don't think it came out as a single, did it? But it was like, you know, he, he never wrote the lyrics down or something. <laughs> yeah, like, so it's actually not even named on the album, yeah. on the vinyl. Because yeah, yeah. like, like apparently, yeah, I think apparently it's like he didn't want... He didn't want to show the lyrics or the song itself because he thought that people wouldn't get it unless they listened to it or something. Like, they yeah. didn't want people yeah. to judge it before they listened to it. I, I don't know. Maybe it's just a, one of those yeah. kind of you know railing against the wider punk thing of like oh you can't do that sort of music you know it's all got to be just violent yeah, maybe. Roll and stuff you know but yeah, um maybe. he's also got some more mature songs on as well like songs like in the crowd which kind of yeah. I, I, I kind of read as being like something to do with individualism to an extent and then also yes. and consumer i think consumerism and individual, yeah. yeah definitely yeah. i mean we're using lots of isms but basically yeah. I, I think it's another comment on cultural change as well like you know it's kind of a mm. you know supermarkets are quite new 
Yeah, yeah, they were at the time, yeah. I mean, tell you what, let, let's expand on that because I think that kind of leads nicely into, like, I guess the where the album sits in this lineage of English-focused songwriting. Because basically, this notion of commenting on how Britain is changing and often not in a good way either, like yeah, almost yeah. yearning for a, a more old traditional picture of Britain that was all about, you know, the the, the yeah. village green and cricket games and you know like the, the village Penny, church and all, all that yeah but all, all that stuff you know that, that that has its roots back in the 60s with really yeah. the kinks you know so uh, you know this this article i read in, in one of the sources i used for this podcast it was saying like how when ray davis went on this holiday tour key he went to this hotel and he experienced quite a bit of snobbery from like the more well-to-do tourists who were there and uh, it prompted him to write a well-respected man it, it was sort of like ray davis's sardonic attack on this upper class upper middle class twit and then it became even more apparent on their album the kinks of the village green preservation society you know so it's like lamenting the loss of village green England that we're talking about and like yeah. worrying about the encroachment of American tourism and general suburban yeah. expansion yeah. you know into yeah. the countryside you know so that, that's where that kind of songwriting has its roots in and that's obviously what Weller was tapping on but the jam weren't the only band doing this like in the in early in the 70s you had bands like Genesis and David Bowie and Pink Floyd and later yeah. like new wave bands like the Buzzcocks and the Injury Oliver Costello they're all talking about similar yeah. things like like you mentioned about supermarkets for example, like uh, or the suffocating monotony of commuter working life, or yeah, a loss yeah. of English folk traditions—all these things, you know, yeah, like yeah. They're, they're trying to highlight them as problems, or as like something we should be worried about. And you know, jam, you know, with all mod cons, fits squarely into that lineage, which then yeah. gets continued into the eighties with bands like the Smiths, ultimately, but also like XTC, Madness, Squeeze. But then eventually Britpop is the biggest expression of this ultimately in the 90s where, you know, bands like Blur in particular are trying to make this deliberate attempt to champion things, all things English, really, against the onslaught of like American grunge, you know. We were talking about this yesterday, weren't we, about how like that kind of songwriting is not really as prevalent after the 90s. I mean, in the, in the 2000s, you've got Arctic Monkeys, you know, particularly on the first album. And also to a less extent, I mean, just smaller, smaller acts like The Enemy, for example, who are like a, you know, they were local successful bands for, for where I'm from. They touched upon similar themes as well. But then like in the 2010s, like, we really struggled to think of anyone other than say like Jake Bug, really, you know. Yeah, I, I, uh, I have a i keep doing this because it's almost like a preview to the episode but i do think the lower teens do this a little bit there yeah they do it they do it in a very sort of retrospective way yeah they are the album itself is called anthems for doomed youth right Mm. the the bassines album i'm talking about and it's like you know then there's the song which is the similar the same name but then they proceed to pretty much describe in almost every song an area of london which they used to live in which is now completely different Mm. It's very wistful without really knowing why. And, and, and you know, obviously the, yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's, uh, it's interesting. Yeah, this, yeah, I think wistful really encapsulates it because yeah. like when we're talking about the choral, their lyrics were wistful in a sense of a romance related thing. Whereas with, with what we're talking about here is we're talking about not romance, but we're talking about England. We're talking well, it, well, it's, about... Well, it's like yeah, romance, romance for, is for not... Pa- for past, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah for past, exactly. For something that perhaps... It's like almost exaggerating what the past may or may not have looked like to an extent. Yeah. You know, you, you have the this kind of 
it had its own problems, yeah, but, yeah. but yeah, yeah. Yeah, that in effect is what nostalgia is. It's kind of taking the good bits of what you remember and leaving out the bad. And so in a way, the songwriting is a form of nostalgia. And it's interesting that you have this thread throughout British rock history that seems yeah. to touch upon it. It's a very British thing. Like you don't really get the same thing to an extent in the American rock tradition. No. I'm not really sure you do. I think it's a very peculiar like British thing and so the legacy of this album of all mod cons really is to spur that on you know most of the punk bands we've talked about before like quite nihilistic you know they weren't really offering they weren't really offering any kind of escapism or any kind of solution or route out or anything like no vision of anything whereas like it fell to bands like the buzzcocks and the jam who were like more the more i guess intellectual set of the punk scene to to try and come up with more social commentary that wasn't so depressing or nihilistic, you know, and that directly you could argue on my, all my cons has an impact on Blur's album Modern Life is Rubbish because that was, you know, a lot of <laughs> a lot of the songs in there were talking about old England and, you know, English traditions and stuff. And, it, you know, yeah. I think in, in a large part that Blur's early career up until their the Great Escape album, it was very like this English identity thing was a real part of their image which is funny because that, you know, it's like Oasis would mock them for that, really. It's just, you know, Noel Gallagher, in like an interview yeah. later on, he, he would say like, how on earth Damon Albarn has time to worry about the encroachment of American culture is beyond me, really. It's just like he doesn't really <laughs> doesn't really get it. Like for someone yeah. like not, you know, that's... Well, um, but I, I, yeah. think, I, I think in, in fairness to both Noel and Tableau, mm. because Noel and Liam obviously came from a working class background in Manchester, mm. I think their identity is actually much stronger than Blur's was, which is why they're not worried about it. Yeah, and I think that's probably the case Noel was making in that interview. Yeah. I think he was, I mean, to be honest, this is a really old interview. This was from like 2003 when like the wounds of the Brit yeah. battle were still quite raw. And Noel said something like, because, you know, I've worked on the building site, you know, my yeah, soul yeah, yeah. is fundamentally purer than his. <laughs> <laughs> he actually said that. Like, they're, they're actually good friends nowadays. Like, they've long yeah. since made up for yeah, it all but... and realised how silly it all was. But, like, at the yeah. time, the, the, I mean, obviously, the whole press really made this whole issue of, like, oh, it's a class thing, you know, we're going to yeah, pitch yeah. them middle-class blur against working-class oasis. But in a way, it's almost like it was a difference of perspective, definitely. I think, like, yeah. Damon was the more academic, really, because, like, he'd gone through art school and, you know, I think yeah. he... I think he came from Surrey, didn't he? And then he, and he moved to London, studied there. And like, I think he just looked around and just, uh, and they went on tour in the States as well. And they just thought, oh, we don't like American culture and all that stuff. Whereas, I mean, Oasis's career started later than Blur's did. And they didn't go on their American tour until until, until they released the, fir- the first album later on, really. So like, in some ways, Blur was ahead of Oasis in terms of what their focus was on. But yeah, I think their own experiences shaped talks that they really cared about such things i mean yeah, yeah. but yeah it's 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 interesting how well, that, that kind of focus on that sort of theme can be traced all the way back not only yeah. to the jam but all the way to the kings as well yeah, and, yeah. And, and, and the beatles to an extent you know yeah, yeah i think the be- yeah, yeah definitely yeah so um, there's this real there's this real lineage that the jam are part of and i think that's that's quite a it just goes to show that britain's got quite a rich kind of rock tradition of its own that isn't necessarily indebted to american culture or or american music it's more of a reflection of 
British language and culture. Yeah. It's almost, it's almost yeah. I, I tell you what it's like. It's, this is almost like British version of folk music. If folk music didn't have such a weird reputation. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying, you know, I'm, not, I'm just, yeah. But when, when people say folk music, you usually think of like fiddles and acoustic guitars and stuff like this. But yeah. what I'm saying is, yeah. it's like modern folk music, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah, sounds lame. But, but you, know, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. what I'm trying to say is, maybe we'll flush this out in future episodes, but it's, it's an interesting area that we've kind of stumbled upon here. Yeah, well, I mean, absolutely. Let's, let's when we do the Libertines, if, you want, if, if we say let's do the Libertines next, we can explore sure. that theme further if you want. Yeah. The thing is, for me, uh, and, you know, I'm conscious of time, but, um, but just touching on Libertines, I'm just not really that familiar with them. Yeah. For me, this will be a far more of a, a learning yeah, curve for me than, stuff, than, yeah. than, than it would be for you, actually. The, the roles will be reversed to an extent compared to previous episodes. Like, uh, I only really know a few of their songs. So for yeah. me to listen to... One of, one of their albums would be a new experience for me and I, I'd be quite keen to to see what my thoughts are on it because I think I think at the time at the at the time of Libertines for me I just didn't really get them I didn't yeah. and also as musicians the same, the same, same yeah, yeah, yeah yeah as yeah. as musicians I just didn't really rate them either I thought like <laughs> and I and I know it sounds snobbish but the thing is, is like to, when I listen to their best known singles like it just sounds like they're a bit all over the place, like not yeah, just the guitar yeah. playing, but also like yeah. the way they sing and stuff. It just all just sounds like they're a bit drunk or something. And I just yeah. think, yeah, yeah. and I, I guess that just didn't appeal to me at the time. To say that like, it would be, it'd be interesting, like how I feel about it now if, if I was yeah. to listen to that uh, music and, and see what my perspective is, you know. So I think I think it'd be really it'd be really good to try something new in that sense. Like obviously, like as I say, you'll, you'll in this case you'll be more familiar with it than I am. So it'd be interesting yeah. to hear your thoughts on it compared to. My new well, ears one, on it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the one of the one of the enduring things about it is that you know again, maybe it's just me because obviously I studied history. I've done a lot of history generally throughout my life, but yeah. um, it's just fascinating to see somehow in their lyrics and in the way they're what they're singing about. Again, a place that is not that long ago, and yet still totally alien, or not completely yeah. alien, but yeah. changed significantly. Yeah, I think. Even it's amazing how even with our own lifetime, so much has changed. Yeah. Like, uh, if you take London as an example, like I, I remember earliest memories I have of going to London is probably when I was fourteen. So this would have been like two thousand four, and you know this would have been yeah around the time that the Libertines were you know yeah. in their in their prime commercially and, and doing their thing. But like. I think that when I think of London now, it's almost completely different to how I remember yeah, it initially. Yeah. Because, like, yeah. I think I think it's just there's there's so much character to it. Like, there's just so much so much more of a melting pot than even than it even was then. Like, there's this it's and yeah, I mean, like, if if you were to compare things like I don't know property prices or like the, yeah. the general pedestrianisation of places or gentrification, even you know, that, that's I um, think that's probably the that, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's really changed the look and feel of places, and and that's not just necessarily limited to London. I mean, it's elsewhere in the country as well. Yeah, but like. Yeah. But so I think London's a very obvious example of it, isn't it? I found, I found that London has it more acutely. I mean, I remember yeah. watching The Crown recently. Oh, yeah. Um, have you seen Oh, yeah. Seen yeah, I'm yeah. not just speaking all the... Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> very good. League A listeners, it's your homework. But anyway, so in the episode where Diana is introduced to Prince Charles, she's living in Earl's Court with a, with a, with a couple of flatmates or whatever. I mean, they're obviously you know, relatively well off, but this is obviously not a nice part of London. And I think one of them refers to it as among the Australians and prostitutes she lives. 
it's like Earl's Court, really. Have you been to Earl's Court recently? Like, it's like I'm not saying it's the most expensive place, but it is pretty bougie now. Yeah, it's not cheap now. It's not like that. And that was in when was that? Like, I suppose that was in the 70s, actually. So maybe yeah. <laughs> maybe I yeah. just ruined that completely. <laughs> uh, that was probably the mid 80s, maybe. Yeah, because I think I think they met in the in the early 80s, didn't they? Well, I mean, they start, that's when they started dating. I think that I think that the way yeah. that, that that episode, well, the series, I think it, it implies that. Charles met, yeah. might have met Diana when she was much younger, like in the seventies. But they didn't actually start really dating yeah. until until the early eighties, and then obviously they to get married. But yeah, I think you know, to be fair, it's not the point you mentioned about you know when they're living in that flat. You know, I think that is yeah. probably around the general time of when all yeah. the cons. You know, it's only a difference of Came two or three years really. So, yeah. yeah, that's actually kind of a bad example because I was kind of going for something later. But that's, yeah, you get the idea. I mean, yeah. uh, I think I think the other one is is in in Razor Lights. Don't go back to Dalston. Um, <laughs> It's like, what's the fascination with Dalston? Have you been to Dalston recently? It's actually yeah, not like it was in the 90s. It's just fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I, anyway. I, I'm not, I can't say I'm familiar with that song. Again, Dalston, Lights, Junc- like... Dalston Junction, I should say, yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, I mean, it's. I, I tell you what, it's been a really interesting episode this time around, I think. Be- yeah. just, just because I think we spent so much time, I think, focusing on other things that we haven't really, I guess, had the opportunity to talk about with previous albums, just because I, I think the legacy of those other albums and the impact they've had has been different, really. I think like I the, think we're building up a layering effect of different things that we've sort of to, almost to learned, I suppose. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And it's definitely interesting to like draw different connections to different episodes. But also I think like with each episode we do, we're we're always kind of looking at something different each time, even if we are reflecting on similar themes from before particularly when we keep mentioning the Gallagher brothers, but uh, <laughs> yeah. I hey, mean, that's, but, that's just yeah. you this time. I'm sorry. That's, uh, yeah. that's just you. Yeah. I, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm the guilty party this time. <laughs> but uh, on that note, is, was there anything else you wanted to mention about all mod cons or do you want to leave it there? I'm going to dive in with my favorite lyric, even though you told me not to do it. <laughs> let's, let's do um, it. Well, my favorite lyric from To Be Someone, and um, the lyric is, uh, there's no more swimming in guitar-shaped pools. Yeah, yeah, that's blah, 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 great. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I'm, out, I'm out on my ass with the rest of the clowns, it ends up like this. <laughs> yeah. No more cocaine, now it's only ground yeah, chalk. That, that, yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No more taxis, now we'll have to walk. Yeah, it's so funny. But did we have a nice time? Yeah, exactly, yeah. Oh, great tune, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, uh, to be honest that would have been one of my picks actually but yeah. like um to, to, just to be different i think one of my favorite lyrics is actually from billy hunt i think there's there's two there's two sets there actually i think yeah. one of them is from i think it's from the second verse it says i remember the first day on my job i didn't go, i didn't get on too well with the four-man bob do this <laughs> do that don't even stop for a cough he used to be a sergeant in the RAF. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's supposed to be a, yeah. supposed to be a rhyme, right? Do I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. I think it's. Yeah. I think the flow of it just makes me laugh every time. Yeah. I love it. I, I, it like, Billy Hunt brings a smile to my face every time I listen to it. It's just yeah. such a such a cheesy. But the the other lyric was um, nobody pushes Billy Hunt around. Well, they do, but not for long. <laughs> I just, yeah, I just love the the the, the kind of that self conscious kind of yeah, uh, yeah thing yeah. about lyrics. Like 
no one pushes me around. Well, actually, they do. I'm a bit of a <laughs> but, but I won't put it with any longer. It's starting now. Yeah. You know, it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. But I mean, I, to be honest, I could go on forever with many lyrics on, on yeah. that album. But to be honest, I think that, that those would be like my pick, really. So, yeah, it's a strong, strong album lyrically. And uh, great to listen to it again. I, I enjoy it just as much as I as I did back when I first started listening to it well over 10 years ago. Um, and yeah. uh, I think I enjoyed it more, actually. I mean, I, yeah. I'm actually probably going to re-listen to quite a few songs now. Like I said, one, some of my favourite ones are actually from either the period immediately after this or just after Setting Suns. Strange yeah. Town, When You're Young, yeah. Eating Rifles, and Smithers Jones, which obviously is another... another <laughs> Yeah, Clean, yeah, I like, yeah. Smith Jones is quite interesting because it's like I'm afraid we've known the position is no longer available for you. Or yeah. like, <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's just another song that kind of paints this depressing picture of working life, isn't it? It's yeah, like, yeah. yeah. So, all mod cons kind of yeah it does set that tone and template for uh, albums thereafter, doesn't it? In terms of the songwriting, so yeah, pivotal album for sure. Indeed. Thank you.